0: Let's pray together. Oh God, we open our hearts and our lives to you on this day. And as we continue to move through our Lenten journey, we ask that you would speak to us about the things that we need to hear. That our hearts might be broken open in the ways that it needs to be broken open. And that we might... Feel your spirit stirring in our life. Speak to us now, we pray. Amen. He couldn't see on account of the crowd, Luke writes. They're blocking the way. I always find that little detail a bit troubling in this story. The people of Jericho... They are in the way. And Zacchaeus, he can't see Jesus, not because he doesn't want to. He can't see Jesus because of them. On a very practical level, that's, of course, partly because Zacchaeus was, quote, short in stature. But remember, scripture often has multiple layers of meaning. Zacchaeus probably was a bit short. But the way Luke tells the story, I think he's saying something more. Mike Parsons, a New Testament scholar, wrote this book about how physical descriptions in the Gospel of Luke almost always have a metaphoric meaning, and Zacchaeus is a prime example. To say that he is short in stature says something more than about how many feet and inches he measures. It probably also means that Zacchaeus is small in the eyes of his community. He is Looked down upon, he has no respect and probably no friends. And of course, a large part of that had everything to do with his job and his wealth. By now, we already know that tax collectors are somewhat despised in their communities. We heard glimpses of this early on in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi, who we now know as Matthew, to become a disciple Do you remember what happened there in Luke 5? Jesus not only had invited a tax collector to be one of his primary followers, Jesus then went to Levi's house for this huge party and banquet with all these other tax collectors. And it was a bit of a scandal early on in Jesus's ministry. Remember, tax collectors were seen as collaborators with the occupying force. Everywhere that Rome went, everywhere they conquered, Rome charged a tax for the Pax Romana, for the, quote, peace of Rome that they were bringing to the world. And that tax, well, it paid for their military, and it paid for their growing economic empire and roads. Taxes were what made the Roman Empire work. So, in every little town, all over the Roman Empire, they needed a local person to collect that tax. And, of course, it was expected that these tax collectors could collect also some to keep for themselves for all their trouble, only there were no real rules about how much extra that should be. The tax collector really got to set the tax rate as long as Rome got Rome's share, which meant, you know, that a rich tax collector was probably rich off the backs of his neighbors. It also meant that if you were living in a poor region like Judea and in a simple little village like Jericho, it was this really unusual opportunity to get ahead in a world where there really are no economic ladders to climb. And I kind of imagine for someone who is, quote, short in stature, and may not have had the physical abilities for other lines of work, it was an especially appealing and unique opportunity to provide. Only you had to give up some of your principles to do it. And you had to give up your reputation to do it. And you had to live under this microscope of other people's opinions about you, your money, and how you made a living. If you were a rich tax collector? Well, you bet people talked. As far as they were concerned, you were rich because you took more than your share. If you're a rich tax collector, well, that's probably because you stole some of what should have been theirs. You were rich because you didn't mind selling your soul to Rome. That was the line of thinking, and Well, there's a good chance that was true an awful lot of the time. So let's go back to Zacchaeus. Luke tells us that he was not just a tax collector. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was a supervisor of the other tax collectors. And yes, he was, quote, very rich. Luke makes sure we know. You see why he was held in such low esteem in his community. He's starting to see what maybe Luke means when he says that Zacchaeus was, quote, small in stature. Zacchaeus may have been rich, but everyone held their head up above his. Everyone looked down on him. And the richer he was, the more it was true. When the people in Jericho saw Zacchaeus, they really didn't see someone else like them. In fact, they probably didn't see a person at all. All they saw was a chief tax collector who was very rich. All they saw was a very little man. When Jesus came to town that day, Zacchaeus, like everyone else, went went to see him, wanted to see him. Only Zacchaeus, he couldn't. On account of the crowd, Luke writes, on account of the crowd holding their heads up high above his, blocking his view. The whole setup to this story has me thinking about how we perceive one another and how our own perspectives of one another, well, it can keep some blocked from seeing salvation. And maybe that's especially true of how we perceive the rich and their money and the rest of us. I mean, I don't really care how much money you do or you do not make. I imagine that you know some people who make a bit more money than you, and if you don't know them personally, you know some people who are a lot more wealthy than you from the news. And I'm willing to bet that when it comes to the uber rich, you might just have some opinions about them and their money and how it relates to all the rest of us. I know I certainly do. It seems that's one of the things about money, isn't it? And how it works on us. It triggers these assumptions and judgments. Without even thinking about it, it's pretty easy to have an opinion of someone based just off their money, isn't it? whether they have more than you or less than you, you've probably made a few judgments about those whose money looks a bit different than your own. Growing up, I always had family. I had lots of aunts and cousins around, and I had aunts and uncles and cousins that had quite a bit more money than we did, and sometimes it could be easy to think certain things about them, Ironically, I also had some aunts and cousins that had quite a bit less money than we did. And sometimes it could be easy to think certain things about them. Have you noticed that in yourself? How much we compare. And in that comparison, we make judgments about one another. How they spend their money or how they don't spend their money what they choose to spend it on or what they don't choose to spend it on, what they make or what they don't make, it's almost automatic for us. Other people's money, it so often triggers us, doesn't it? We just do it without thinking. We make these judgments about their salary or about their spending patterns or about what they do have or about what they do not do with their money. You know, maybe the most obvious way to notice that in yourself is when you step into an entirely different culture than you own, than your own. I remember when I was in college, I had these roommates who came from more wealthy families than I did. And so these roommates, they had more clothes and nicer clothes and their parents paid for their college and they drove cars that their parents paid for. And at times, I was a little jealous, but at other times I was a little judging and just a little self-righteous in my own financial independence. But then summer came, and in the summers during college, I went down to work in this poor village outside of Monterey, Mexico. And some of the homes in this village, in fact, about half of this village, it was just made of these shacks that were thrown together by whatever scraps of wood and tin the people could find. Some of the nicer homes in this village were just a simple one-room or two-room house made of cinder block walls with a dirt floor and a tin roof. And boy, I tell you, that tin roof, it could bake you like a roast pig in the summer heat. Now, it was a really big step up in that community if you could save up for a few years and get a concrete floor poured in your two-room house you were living large and people might talk about you but for those who were really moving up for the top in that village you might even eventually get a concrete roof man that would make all the difference in that summer heat it would stay cool like a cave well, I remember one day talking to a man that our organization had hired, a local person from the area to do all the cooking for all these church groups that we hosted for the summer. And on this particular day, this cook and I, we'd gotten to know each other over the first half of the summer. And, and he started asking me about my family and about where I was from. And and of course, he was interested and he asked to see some pictures. So of course, I, I pulled out some pictures. But as soon as I glanced at the pictures I was opening up. I became so self-conscious of just what a mansion my family lived in, relatively speaking. Honestly, I, I remember feeling a little embarrassed. I, he he didn't seem embarrassed, he was just really impressed. Wow, that's a beautiful home your family has, he said in his broken English, and suddenly I felt this huge gap between him and me begin to grow. And I wondered, did my college roommates ever feel that way when I looked at them or talked about their homes? It seems that's how money works on us, isn't it? It evokes all kinds of emotions, Things like envy and shame. And it seems to do everything it can to make us feel like we are so different from one another. Sometimes we're the one with envy. Sometimes we're the one feeling shame. Sometimes it's a shame about what I do have. Sometimes it's shame about what I don't have. And sometimes it's shame jumping out of me judging someone else for what they have. That's just what money seems to do to us. It wants us to think that we are so very different from one another. It tempts us to judge the wealthy and to judge the poor, when at the root of all that judging is really the shame and judge we carry about ourselves and how we hold our own money. And you know what, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the result of all that judging, it does a whole lot less to redeem one another into the family of God and a whole lot more to create barriers for those who just want to see Jesus but can't because of our high and holy heads that are in the way. That's what seems to be happening in Jericho on that day. Zacchaeus was a very rich Man, that the community was used to looking down on. And so when Jesus came to town, Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus because the community was in the way. Only Jesus wasn't quite as blind as the rest of them. They may have been used to looking over Zacchaeus's head, but on this day, Jesus looks over their heads and sees Zacchaeus up in the tree in a rich man's clothes, desperate to see the one he's heard so much about. And Jesus calls him down and does what Jesus is so often prone to do. He brings honor to the outsider whether they are the rich or the poor, whether they are the tax collector or the prostitute. Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house, Jesus says in front of that whole crowd who's gathered. Now, remember what I said last month, tables in the Gospel of Luke, and tables just in general are these great equalizers, and Jesus is using his status on that day to lift Zacchaeus up, in the eyes of this town, I'm going to eat at your table. Now, of course, the whole town just grumbles about it. I mean, they can't believe that Jesus is giving so much honor to this greedy, good-for-nothing, treacherous, rich tax collector. But what if, what if that's not really who Zacchaeus is? What if it never has been? What if that's just what they have assumed about him? What if the hidden truth is that they never knew that Zacchaeus is actually the most generous person in all of Jericho? I want to invite you to take a second look at what Zacchaeus says to Jesus after he gets down from the tree and the crowd starts grumbling about him there in verse 8. A lot of our translations don't quite have it right. In the NRSV translation, which is what I use most, Zacchaeus says, Jesus, I will give half my money to the poor and anyone I've cheated, I will give back double. That's how I've always heard the story, Zacchaeus is promising to change. But that's not actually what it says in the Greek. I was listening to a few scholars this week that pointed out the verbs that Zacchaeus used aren't future tense verbs. They are present tense ongoing verbs. Some translators have noticed that little mistake. So the Common English Bible, which our youth group uses quite a bit, it actually gets it a bit more accurate. When the crowd starts grumbling about Zacchaeus, in verse eight, the Common English Bible reads this way. Hey, Jesus, I give half my money to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I repay them four times as much. In other words, this is Zacchaeus's ongoing practice. It's presently what he does. It's how he lives his life. Of course, nobody in town seemed to notice that. And maybe that's because he doesn't make much of a show of it. Maybe it's because the town is too used to automatically looking down on him or just looking past him that they don't ever actually see him. He's just that chief tax collector who's very rich. That's all they see. But when we read the story closely, it may be that Zacchaeus is so much more than all of those judgments. It may just be that he's working this system that's set up by Rome because somebody has to, and he's using it to care for the poor and to bring justice to his community. Zacchaeus may appear to be one of the richest men in town. Maybe he is, but despite what everyone thinks about him, there's a good chance that he is also the most selfless and generous person in town. And this little story of Zacchaeus is the very last story that Luke tells us about Jesus's actions and ministry before he arrives in Jerusalem to start Holy Week. It's the last story that speaks about Jesus's interactions in a community outside of the events that will happen in Jerusalem that week. Now, do you remember last week how I told you that Luke keeps making us deal with money? with my money and your money and the role it plays in our relationships with our neighbors? Well, apparently, it's not as simple as we might like to think. Luke and Jesus in Luke comes at us in all kinds of directions. I mean, like we saw in last week in Luke 16 with the parable that Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus in that parable does confront us about me, my money, and and the poor and now this week here in Luke 19 Jesus confronts us about our relationship to the rich their money and the rest of us And you know I kind of imagine Jesus does that because he cares so deeply not about stereotypes but he cares so deeply about your well-being and my well-being, and the well-being of the poor, and the well-being of the rich. And, and he sees better than any of us do just how much power money has over all of that for good and for bad. Last week in that parable about the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus made us face this very uncomfortable reality that as long as the poor are living in hell, then so are we. But this week, with the story of Zacchaeus, it seems Jesus is trying to help us see the other side of that coin. Our self-righteous judgments about the rich may not only be completely wrong, after all, as far as you know, that rich person may just be doing way more for the poor and for justice than you and I, but our own self-righteousness may also be keeping us from the joy of the great banquet with Jesus and the children of Abraham. Did you notice that that's how the story ends. Jesus is heading to Zacchaeus's house telling everyone who will listen, "Hey, salvation is coming to this house because Zacchaeus is a child of Abraham," while everyone else is sort of left out of the joy of that night grumbling about the whole thing. See this the parallels between The parable of last week and this week's story are really quite striking. In both, there is this great gulf that money creates between us. In both, there is this reference to Abraham as a symbol of salvation. And in both, there is this feeling that our relationship to money has somehow kept us outside of that story of salvation. So maybe I wonder if we could hold these two stories together, if we might be able to recognize that the power that money has over us is a power that can create divisions in all kinds of ways. Maybe these stories together can help us discover that we've got some real brokenness in our own personal relationship to money and the messages we carry around about money, and and some of that brokenness in us, well, it might just be creating hell for the rich and the poor and for ourselves. Maybe this Lent, that is the most important thing that we could confess and seek healing for, our relationship to money. My hope for us all on this Linton Road is that we might find at least a little bit more salvation from money's power over our life and especially its power over our relationships. May we find the courage to tear down any barrier it wants to create between us and the Lazaruses of this world and us and the Zacchaeuses of this world. And, and may we find the humility And the freedom from money's power to not judge one another on what we do have or don't have so that wherever the kingdom of God is breaking in, whether it's with the poor or with the rich, we can be there too, to join in the joy. Amen. Amen.